God, you are great and awesome and worthy of all our praise and all our love from all of who we are. And Lord, um, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have set us apart as your people. We thank you that you have called us to draw near to you. We thank you for the privilege of being able to pray and know that you hear us. And we pray that you would answer the prayers that have been offered um, for our for us individually, for us as a congregation, and for your church at large in the world, oh Lord God. Um, we do specifically ask for our brothers and sisters in Canada who are preaching against an evil law, um, banning, speaking of you, really. And we pray that you would be with them, be with the churches, strengthen them greatly uh, for the sake of your name and your glory. We ask this morning as we come to your word that you would give us ears to listen, that we would understand our identity more in you, not only as individuals, but as a people. And we pray that you would um, bless our time this morning. Uh, be with those who can't make it this morning. Encourage their souls and their hearts. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. We are looking at first, for the reading, we are going to do 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 through 27. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. And remember, the reason we stand is for honor and reverence of God's word, because when the scripture speaks, God speaks. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For on one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I, will, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the, be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which the, our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You may be seated. Well, as you recall, if you're joining us this Sunday, and this is the first time uh, you weren't here last week, uh, we're taking a bit of a break from Matthew, not for indefinitely, but just for a time, uh, to talk about a significant issue of church membership. And before we need to talk about church membership, which is really what we're going to hone in on uh, starting today, uh, we needed to talk about what's the nature of the church? What is the nature of the church? And so we did that last week. We talked about what the nature of the church is. 
And uh, if you remember, there should be a slide on the screen. I also put those definitions in your notes. We had a couple definitions last week, and they were long. I like long definitions. Um, it was the same when I was a mathematician, I'm sorry. Um, but but uh, I'll put them in your notes for you. I put them on the slide, so uh, there should be on the slide uh, behind me. But let's just recall what we learned last week. Before we talk about church membership, we need to understand what is the church. And so we said this, the universal church is the assembly it's, that's fundamentally what the word church means, assembly. It's a gathering of people. Uh, this church, new, universal church is an assembly of all new covenant members who are genuine disciples of Christ the King, who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, who are priests for God in the world, and who together form a temple for the display and enjoyment of the glory of God. That is the universal church. It's the church that Jesus began to build on the day of Pentecost and will be completed and only will be completed uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, when everyone will be gathered together as that final one assembly that Jesus has been saving. And so what we said last week is you can't see the universal church. You can't actually see the whole thing until the future, until the end. But you can see a manifestation of it in a local church. And that leads us to that second definition. Again, it's in your notes. It's also on the screen. This is from uh, Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen in their book, Rediscovered Church. It's really good. Uh, it says this, A local church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King, to affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances, that's the Lord's Supper and baptism, and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world following and te the teaching and example of elders. At least their definition is longer than mine. Um, but the, the point is that idea, and we trace it through Scripture, that Jesus loves his universal church, he loves his local church, and you saw that picture in Revelation last week where he views his local church, uh, his local churches, rather, plural, as lampstands. A lampstand was in the temple. Uh, it, we said the universal church is a temple. We've also said the local church is a temple, and the local church is an embassy. I like that analogy of embassy. I think it's really helpful because really what we're doing as a people, as a local church, is putting on display uh, God's glory. That's what the lampstand was supposed to do, but it's also uh, putting on display God's glory as a beacon to the world. We are an embassy. We are a representative of the foreign nation, the future nation, the future kingdom of God's kingdom. Now today, after those definitions, we're getting into church membership proper. And, you know, I don't know about you, uh, I, I had my own journey with church membership, and I struggled with it. I really struggled with church membership. I really did. Uh, I grew up in a church that taught church membership, but mainly church membership was uh, something like, uh, if you want to serve, if you want to teach, uh, you need to become a member. That was the motivation. If you want to serve, you want to teach, you got to become a member. Um, and not that that's a wholly bad motivation, but it didn't get at the core of what membership was all about. And so basically, I, even as I went through seminary, the first few of the seminary classes, there was a couple presentations on church membership, and the farthest I could get, the farthest I could get personally was to say, yeah, church membership's a good idea, but it's not commanded. And yet, over the last couple years, and I, I would say that was still my position up until a couple years ago, uh, when I started, uh, the, the, the church membership began to be presented in connection with other things in Scripture, and I began to understand that it's not just a good idea, it is 
a command, what I believe is a command from the scriptures, as long as you understand church membership rightly. And that's the catch. Uh, That's the catch. We struggle with church membership. Why do we struggle with it? Uh, Why do people struggle with it? Well, I think at a core level, we struggle with it, and I would even say I struggle with it, because church membership ultimately has to do with the issue of authority. It does. Uh, At a core level, church membership has to do with the issue of authority. And don't we live in an anti-authoritarian age and in an anti-authoritarian culture? We only have to look at the news, right? And we understand that no matter what it is, right, if the government says, do this, we're like, no, I'm an American. I don't have to do that, right? Uh, It's that kind of mentality. We have that very, uh, we talked about about this a little bit last week, that idea of the autonomous individual, uh, that we have that mindset. And so it's really difficult for us, even in our heritage as a nation, we're kind of built on a rebellion, aren't we, in a lot of ways. And so all of that has kind of filtered in. And so that's, I think, one of the reasons we struggle with uh, church membership, because it does fundamentally have to do with authority. But here's the thing, and I really want you to catch this. Uh, when we look at the scriptures, we understand that all legitimate authority is delegated by God. All legitimate authority is delegated by God. Uh, it's all a stewardship authority, whether you're talking about the authority of the, the husband in a family or whether you're talking about the authority of the government. Uh, all of it is ultimately designed and given by God as a stewardship authority. And God-given authority, rightly stewarded, brings blessing to those under the authority. That's God's design for legitimate authority. God-given authority, rightly stewarded. It's all a stewardship. God-given authority, rightly stewarded, brings blessing to those under the authority. So I want you to think about that as we're talking about church membership today, because why are we talking about this? Well, uh, we've got several reasons, but at a core level, it's because it's something that God has designed to bless his people. It's something that God has designed to bless his people. Uh, And I get it. Uh, If you struggle with church membership, I've struggled with it, so I get where you're at. Uh, There's a few resources that can help you. Uh, I just want to point those out before we go much further. One would be a little book we have on the back in the fireside room on that little little table with the red uh, cloth in there. You can take uh, a copy if you'd like. It's a little pamphlet called Why Should I Join a Church by Mark Dever. Uh, You can grab one of those if you haven't already. I've already mentioned Rediscover Church by Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen. I gave away a few of those a number of weeks ago. Really good book, a little more substantial, but talking about a lot of these issues. And then specific to the interrelationships of church membership, the Lord's Supper, and baptism, which is where we're going in the next couple weeks, great book by Bobby Jameson called Going Public. So if, if you want to read up on this more and just say, ah, I think the pastor's blowing smoke, uh, read up on some of these things and, um, and, and, and meditate with me on them. And that I get it. It takes some time, but those are some resources I would, uh, I would uh, point you to. Now, again, why do we want to talk about this? We want to talk about this because we want to think about the church as Jesus does. Don't we want to do that? Jesus has a particular mindset and design for the church, and we want to think about the church like Jesus does. Why? Because that will help us fulfill the mission that Jesus gave us, right? We want to think about the church rightly, uh, as Jesus does, because that will help us fulfill the mission that Jesus gave us. And like I pointed out last week, it will also help us in shaping our identity over against the cultural pressures that we are increasingly facing. 
Uh, we need, uh, Jesus, I believe, would have our identity be in, uh, not totally in, ultimately in him, but by extension in the local church, and that will help us as we continue to face the cultural pressures that are going to be arrayed against us. So the way we're going to proceed this morning is by asking questions. I like asking questions. Here's our big question for this morning. What is church membership? What is it? Uh, and we're going to answer that by answering several smaller questions. Uh, and so the first question, the first sub-question that we're going to answer to help us answer the big question of what is church membership, we're going to talk about what, is it, what do we mean by church membership? What do we mean by that? What is, what is the fundamental reality of the way Scripture talks about that? Now, uh, you might say, okay, well, well where, are, where are you going to start? Are you going to first start 1 Corinthians 12? Are you going to start in... Matthew, where are you going to go? Well, actually, I'm going to go to the Old Testament. Surprise, surprise. I I go to the Old Testament a lot because there's a lot of good foundational things in there. But here's, we're not going to spend a ton of time here, but here's the big, uh, here's one thing I wanted to highlight for you is really the idea of membership starts in the Old Testament. It really does. Because like we said, what is the universal church? It's the new covenant assembly. We said there was a shift from the Israelite covenant given at Mount Sinai to the new covenant uh, that Jesus inaugurated. And, but there's, there's an analogy between the two. The, the old covenant grouping of people, uh, the people that were at Mount Sinai, the nation of Israel was called the assembly. Uh, the church is called the assembly. It's not replacing Israel uh, by any means. That's not what we're saying. But there's, a, a, there's an analogy between the two. There's a, there's a correspondence of a sort. And what you need to know is that God in the Old Testament was very, very interested in having a distinct, definable, and visible people. If you were to have three key words that went along with the idea of church membership, I think it would be those words, distinct, definable, and visible. Distinct, definable, and visible. And that's what you see with the Old uh, Covenant people. Even in the Abrahamic covenant, every time you have a covenant, you have a sign. And that sign marks off, here are the people that are part of that covenant. So you think about the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17. You don't have to go there. You can look it up later. But the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. Why? Because that marked off the males in Israel as a people, will ultimately become the nation of Israel, uh, to be God's visible uh, representative people. But later, even at Mount Sinai, uh, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, the the, the, the instituting of that, that Israelite covenant, that Mosaic covenant, God gives another sign. He gives the sign of the Sabbath as the sign of the Israelite covenant. And why was God doing that? Well, the idea was on the Sabbath, the people of Israel would assemble, they would assemble, and they would be visible and distinct and displayed to a watching world. God was very interested in this was also very interesting, uh, and it was serious business. Uh, If someone didn't circumcise their child, the language that got used was, okay, you're not going to circumcise your child. You're going to be cut off from your people. And that either means one of two things. It either means you're going to die, or often it also just means you're going to be thrown out of the assembly. You're going to be thrown out of the assembly. So sometimes I think it means that that language, cut off from your people, I think sometimes it means uh, death, Uh, But sometimes it just means you're thrown out, you're exiled from the community, is that idea. 
Uh, what's also very interesting, you think of the Old Testament and you say, well, it's just the Jews. Actually, there was a way for people to be part of this visible, distinct people who were from the other nations. Uh, turn briefly, if you would, to Exodus, um, Exodus 12. And Exodus 12, if you, if you remember, is about the Passover. So this is right when Israel is about to go out from the land of Egypt to go to God at Mount Sinai to have that covenant made with them. But the Passover was really like the key uh, remembrance of God's deliverance of his people. But what's very interesting, as, he, uh, as God walks through, here's what you're going to do, here's what you're going to do in an ongoing way to celebrate this, he actually brings up the issue of foreigners, those who are Gentiles, that's what we would say, outside of the people of Israel, and them wanting to come in. Uh, look at Exodus 12, 43. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner may eat of it. So in general, we're talking no one outside of this visible, distinct people of Israel is going to eat it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. So the idea is, all right, you buy a slave, maybe he's even a foreigner, but he's brought into your household as a slave, and as long as you put the covenant mark on him, circumcision, he gets to eat the Passover. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised. So there you see someone's a stranger. They're a Gentile and they're sojourning with you. They're among the people and they want to keep the Passover. That's fine. Just take on the covenant mark. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, uh, but no uncircumcised per person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. What is God doing? He's saying, all right, uh, my Passover is me delivering this people, this assembly. Uh, I'm, I'm ransoming them for myself. So if a foreigner comes in and say, hey, I see God among you, and he's working among you, and I want to celebrate the Passover too, that's fine as long as you essentially join the assembly, as, part, as long as you join that distinct definable, and visible people where God is working in the world. So I go there, and we're going to move on to the New Testament next, but I go there just to point out the fact that really this idea of membership, this idea of God wanting a distinct, definable, and visible people really starts in the Old Testament, uh, and it's something he's very interested in. And like we said, there's a shift. There's a shift from the Old Covenant and the Old Covenant assembly to what we talked about last week from Matthew 16, to the new covenant, where the, the, the church that Jesus is building is the new covenant assembly. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the new covenant or you need a reminder like I do, uh, go to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This will be important for us as we think about uh, the church and the nature of the church. Um, but Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is the go-to text. There's a couple other texts in the Old Testament that talk about the new covenant, but Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is the go-to uh, text. 
So Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. You might remember this from our study of kingdom through covenant a number of months ago. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with her fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, what's going on here? Uh, Basically, the Old Covenant, if you were to think about it, you could enter the Old Covenant without being saved. You could be part of the visible people of God and yet not know Yahweh. The language of knowing Yahweh is a salvific language. It's actually knowing Yahweh in a true and saving way. And so essentially in the Old Covenant community, the Old Covenant assembly, you had a circle within a circle. You had, here's the visible people of God, but within that, there's a smaller circle of people who actually know Yahweh in a true and saving way. And what the New Covenant is designed to do is to fix that problem. Uh, The problem wasn't with the covenant itself. The problem was with people's obedience. And essentially, the new covenant says everyone in the new covenant assembly, not just a a, a remnant within it, but everyone in the new covenant assembly is going to know Yahweh. And from God's perspective, that's true. Uh, We can't see people's hearts, but God can. So he actually knows who's part of that universal church. Okay, so as we think about this idea of membership, you have to remember uh, what is the fundamental nature of the church? What is it? It's the new covenant assembly as far as the universal church is concerned. But what we saw last week is that there's such a thing as a local church. Turn to Matthew 18. We touched on this last week. We're going to go ahead and touch on it this week a little bit more, more than I got a chance to last week. But what was amazing, and you remember from Matthew 16, is that Jesus gave to Peter, and by the extension, the apostles, the authority. He gave them the authority of the keys of the kingdom. And the authority of the keys of the kingdom was this idea that uh, uh, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, declared, if you're going to follow me, it's not enough to just confess me, it's your whole life. It's what your whole life looks like. And you remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, if you follow me, if you follow the narrow road, you're going to enter the narrow gate into that future kingdom. Um, And in the Sermon on the Mount, he essentially says, okay, here's what it looks like to live as my disciple. That was the idea of binding and loosing. Remember, binding means making a judgment about a commandment and the necessity of an application for someone Loosing means making a judgment about a commandment and the non-necessity of its application for someone. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount and he, uh, in an ultimately authoritative way. He is the king of that kingdom and saying, here's what it looks like to live. If you're calling me your Lord, your master, you've repented from sin, you've entrusted yourself to me, here's what it looks like to live in that way. He's binding and loosing by 
talking about commandments, talking about how to live those out in life. And the amazing thing is, he not only transferred that authority to the apostles uh, and uh, uh, as the foundation of the new covenant assembly, the new covenant temple, uh, and we said, what is that? How did they use that authority? They used that authority to write scriptures, to tell us, okay, we, we live with Jesus. Here's what it means to live for him. That's how they exercise that authority. But then the amazing thing in Matthew 18 is that that's a similar sort of authority, not the exact same, but a similar sort of authority is given to the local church, which is flabbergasting if you think about it. It's flabbergasting. And that's what Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is all about. So let's go ahead and read that. And remember, as you think about this, remember the conception, the local church is an embassy of the universal church. So Matthew 18, 15, he's addressing what, um, what do you do in a local assembly uh, when you've got a sin issue. So Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The idea is we're gathered together as a people. We are uh, supposed to be helping each other to follow Jesus as disciples. So we're going to see things, and you're like, hey, you're professing Jesus, but what you just did there doesn't line up. It doesn't line up with the way Jesus told us to live. And so the loving thing to do is to uh, gently and taking the, your, the log out of your own eye first, approach that person and say, hey, uh, you're not walking as Jesus would have us walk. And so you confront that person, right? But notice what the goal is. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, that's the goal, you have gained your brother. The goal in all of this is to gain your brother in the sense that, hey, you're professing Christ, but you're not walking in line with what Jesus taught us. Um, so, uh, and the ideal scenario is the person repents and says, you're right, brother, thank you. Thank you for correcting me. Um, I'm going to repent. I'm gonna, uh, and I, uh, the idea is you want him restored. You want him on back on the path. You want him back on the narrow path uh, that Jesus laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, verse 19, uh, 16. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That is an Old Testament uh, principle. Uh, in fact, it actually relates in Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 19, but especially in Deuteronomy 17 to the similar issue that, hey, what if you find a fellow Israelite and he's disobeying God? What do you do with that? Well, you do kind of the same thing that Matthew 18 is talking about, but it's always based on this evidence of two or three witnesses. Otherwise, it could be really easily abused. But if he, look at verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, so this is even escalating. He's not just not listening. Hey, brother, you're saying you're a Christian, but you're not walking in the way that Jesus told us. And you've got the one, and then you've got the two and the three, and he's refusing. This is like stubborn refusal to listen. There's no sign of repentance. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, the assembly. And in this sense, Jesus is talking about a local church. Tell it to the local church. Tell it to the local assembly. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what does that mean? Well, 
in Jesus' day, right, Gentiles and tax collectors, and we've talked a little bit about this as we've gone through Matthew, those are the guys that are like, uh, the, those, are, those are the people that are definitely outside of Israel. That was the common mindset anyway. So Jesus is just saying, your guys' common mindset about tax collectors and sinners, you, you think of them as outside of the community. They're definitely not part of God's people. Uh, they're exiles. So Jesus just kind of borrows that and says, that's how you think about someone who you've gone through all the process, you've lovingly and gently come to a person, you've corrected them saying, brother, you are professing Christ, you're professing uh, to follow our Messiah, our King, and yet your life doesn't match what he told us about. And so uh, you bring a couple others along, he still doesn't listen, then you tell to everyone, there's a time for everyone to kind of go after this person, but if there's still refusal to listen, he gets exiled. He gets put out of the church. But notice how Jesus backs this process up. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered into my name, there I am I among them. And what Jesus is doing with those last three verses, he's not, it's not a separate idea from church discipline. It's integrally connected with it. The idea is that as a local church, it has to go to the whole local church first. Uh, the local church, the congregation, the people, the assembly has the authority of the keys. It's the same language that Jesus used in Matthew 16 to talk about the authority of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying, local church, you have that authority. Now remember, this is not a willy-nilly authority. I get to say whatever, and it's backed by heaven. This is a stewardship authority, which means the local church is supposed to act as if Jesus was there. That's what a steward does, right? They act in behalf of the person they're serving. So what we see here, and this is critical as we think about membership, the core idea, remember we said that church membership has to do with authority, Jesus has given a stewardship authority to the local church as an embassy of the future kingdom. Here, what we see is there's authority to declare that a brother, quote-unquote, a professing Christian who is not walking as Jesus is saying, the local church has the authority to say, we are removing our affirmation that you are actually a brother. We are removing our affirmation that you are actually a disciple because your life doesn't match what Jesus told us uh, our life is supposed to look like. But remember what the whole process was supposed to be for. You want to gain your brother, right? You want to, you want to do this so that the, the person is, continues and is brought in. The, the language he uses there is that the brother might be gained. So the flip side of saying, oh, I'm removing my affirmation that you're a brother in Christ is I'm affirming by all that I can see that you are a brother in Christ. And the local church has that authority because Jesus gave that authority to the local church. 
What's interesting in this is the Apostle Paul addresses a very similar issue in 1 Corinthians 5, so you can go ahead and turn there next. And there's, very, there's strong similarities between these two passages because that is, uh, I mean, it's the same principles just played out. So turn to 1 Corinthians 5. First Corinthians 5, Paul says this, to a local church, local church in Corinth, okay? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So already we see the same reality, that there's a, there's a local church, there's a local assembly, and uh, he's telling that local assembly, look, you got a guy there that's it's sexually immoral, put him out, remove him. Remove him from among you. He goes on, verse 3. For although absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember in Matthew 18, it talked about where two or three are gathered into my name? The idea is this authority is only present when the whole church is assembled. Still basing it on the evidence of the two or three witnesses, but it's the idea the whole assembly is together. They've been praying over this. They've been thinking about this. But it's when the whole assembly is gathered in Jesus' name. What does it mean to gather in Jesus' names? It means under Jesus' authority, as that local embassy under his power. So he says this, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now again, you see there, church discipline is always about uh, the purity of the church for the sake of Jesus' name, but also for that person's restoration. Mean, e meaning even when you go to the ultimate stage of putting someone out, it's always for their good. It's always for their good and their ultimate restoration. That's the design behind it. But here we see what I want you to take away here is the authority of the gathered assembly, that local church, to make judgments to make judgments on behalf of heaven. Same thing Matthew 18 said. Uh, you guys make a judgment, you make it prayerfully, you bind, you loose. It's going to be answered uh, when you do this prayerfully, when you do it dependently. It's going to be answered. It's going to be backed by heaven. You have that kind of authority because Jesus said, I am there in your midst. He goes on, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, but with the leaven, the leaven of malice and envy, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What he's talking about is when you had the Passover, we actually talked about that earlier, you also have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and you're supposed to get rid of leaven out of your houses for seven days. And so if anyone had leaven in their houses, they would be cut off from their people. And so it's a similar dynamic here. He's saying, look, get rid of this stuff in, the, uh, in your, your church 
that is defaming God's name, get rid of it because Christ, our Passover lamb, the one who rescued us, the one who started our new exodus, has been sacrificed. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, which you can't do. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now catch this. This is really important. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? I don't have anything to do with judging those outside in the world. I don't have that authority. Jesus didn't give me that authority. That's what Paul is saying. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Which means what? What are we seeing as we pull together Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5? There's an inside to the church and there's an outside, which implies what? There's a boundary. There's a boundary. There's an inside to the church. There's an outside to the church which means there's got to be a boundary between the two, and that's what we call membership. That's what we call membership. I've got a nice little diagram on the screen. Uh, oh, I hope you can, I uh, should have made that bigger, but uh, hopefully you can kind of see that. I put a bunch of smiley faces in a circle, right? But that's the idea. There's an, in, the local church, you've got these, what is it? It's an assembly. It's people. So this building, as cool as it is, I love this church, but uh, that's not the church, really. Uh, the members of Faith Bible Church are the church. Another way to say that is a local church is its membership, its people. It is the membership. The boundary is membership. And then you've got people out in the world. Maybe you've got regular attenders, uh, but they're not part of the local church. Not yet. Why not? Because, here's the issue, uh, because uh, we, we don't know the person, <laughs> Uh, we, we, as a church, there's a two-way street that happens in membership where we know a person, and as the church can affirm the person, yeah, you're following Jesus, you're confessing him like Peter did, and you're walking in that way. Uh, here's another one. Go to the next slide. Here's a good definition of church membership. This is, again, from Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen in their book. It's page 75. This is a good definition. And it's in your notes too, I believe. Church membership is a church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's profession of faith and discipleship, combined with the Christian's submission to the church and its oversight. Let me read that again. Church membership is a church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's profession of faith and discipleship combined with the Christian's submission to the church and its oversight. Uh, he gives a little diagram to go to the next slide. Uh, you can kind of think about this like a loop, right? A church, all the members, a local church is its membership, affirms the profession of someone, oversees their discipleship of an individual Christian who in turn submits to the church. So it's kind of like this, this ongoing loop idea of what church membership is. 
But where do we get that idea? It's all from what 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18 are saying. Jesus has given the authority to a local church to affirm someone's discipleship, to monitor someone's discipleship, and also to remove affirmation if need be. That's what membership is all about. It's an agreement when the individual Christian comes to a local assembly, which is why we've been doing membership affirmations the way we have the last few months, right? Uh, I think the last one was Mike and Lori Jones. No, sorry, it was Joel. It was Joel Clark. Last one was Joel Clark. What did we have Joel do? We had him stand up in front of the assembly, uh, especially our members here, and say, here's who I am. Here is my profession of faith. Now, we as elders have already talked through him uh, about this a little bit, but uh, why do we do that? So that all the members can know who he is, and then what happens? We have a covenant of fellowship where Joel says, I am affirming that I will uphold these things for you as the local church, and then what do I do? I say, I have the, the members stand, and I say, uh, we will also affirm that same covenant for you, and thereby he has become a member. He has become part of the local church. Why do we do that? Well, in that moment, in that moment when we make, we essentially are saying our I do's, if you think about it like that, we are exercising the keys that, and the authority that Jesus Christ gave us as a local church. That is what is happening. It looks really mundane, and yet it is really epic what is happening. This is how Jesus builds his church. This is also why such things as doctrinal statements and church covenants are important. You know, it's not, we, we have a doctrinal statement. We're actually working on a, a new one uh, that we'll present to the members here in a little while. But, but the whole point of a doctrinal statement is, uh, do you believe, are you confessing Christ in the right way? Like a Mormon's going to say, oh, of course I confess Christ. Uh, no, you're not. Not in the same way that we are right? This is why doctrinal statements are so important, right? And saying, do you understand these things and do you agree to these things? And then along with that, church covenants are basically saying, yeah, I, there are vows, right? This is what I am doing for you. This is what you are doing for me, and we are together in this. Now, remember, in all of this, I am not saying the local church is infallible. I'd be a fool to say that, right? but it is a stewardship authority. Stewards can blow it, can't they? Right? God gives a stewardship authority to the government. Does the government always get it right? No. <laughs> Yet that doesn't negate the stewardship that God has given. Right? Uh, we are to live up to the stewardship that God has called us to. So the local church is not infallible. They can get it wrong, but it is it is given that authority as a stewardship by Christ, okay? So you might be at this point, you're, there's a lot of ideas I've thrown at you, I know, uh, but hopefully you're starting to get the picture a little bit, but you're like, man, this just still feels so formal. It feels so, it feels so, I don't know, just icky, almost like legal in a way, right? Um, but here's the thing. Uh, God has given this structure, but he's given it to bless his people, and that's where I want to transition from our first question. What do we mean by church membership? We've defined what we mean by church membership, uh, what we mean by that. It is, it is heavy stuff. But here I want to transition us to this next question. What is the function? What is the function of church membership? 
Um, usually when we think of church membership, we think about the process, like, uh, okay, I need to go through this process to become a church member. I have to jump through these hoops. But by going back and saying, here's what we mean by church membership, and now talking about the function of church membership, we try to highlight, no, it's not some, we're not thinking about the process. We're thinking about what it all means. And really, when we think about the function, we want to highlight why. Why does God have us do this? We've already given the basic reason to affirm one another's to discipleship, to help us follow and grow in Christ. But, but there's more to it. Turn to 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter. You're getting lots of scripture. This is uh, one of the passages we looked at last week. Um, remember we said that the, the local church, it's the local temple, uh, it's, it's a local priesthood even, and we got that idea even from 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter 1.22, and I'm going to read a piece, but I want you to see, what I want you to see in this is, okay, we got the kind of form, formalities out of the way, but why? Why do we have the, this formal stuff? And 1 Peter helps us answer some of that. 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. So you've obeyed the gospel, uh, you've been brought in, and part of that is showing brotherly love. You've not only been saved as an individual, you've been saved into brotherly love with others and to a local church. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The gospel uh, in obeying the gospel and repenting and entrusting yourself to Christ is what brought you in. But God is the one who birthed you, but it was through the means of the word. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news, there it is, that was preached to you. So do what? So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. Keep craving the word. It's what, uh, it's what saved you. Keep craving it because it's what grows you. As you come to him, a living stone rejected. Here's our temple language. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourself like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we gather together, we form a team, we form a temple, we form a priesthood to do what? To offer spiritual sacrifices to God acceptable through the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of, stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's why we're members. To be on the same team, to be part of the same priesthood, to be part of the same local temple, to do what? To proclaim God's excellencies. 
here on a Sunday morning, and then as we scatter out in the world to proclaim, this is the God who saved me. Won't you entrust yourself to him? Won't you repent and entrust yourself to the only one who can save you from our sins? It's just another way of talking about the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, make disciples, aka build the church. This is how Jesus builds his church. How do you do it? By baptizing and by teaching. So we add to the church, we're working together to teach one another. Uh, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Uh, where, what do we see in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16? God has given the, the, the pastors, the elders of a church to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of the church. And how do they do that? By speaking the truth to one another. So this isn't just joining Costco. It's not what we're talking about. This is part of being on the team. Paul would call it partnership for the sake of the gospel. Remember, we talked about that in Philippians, right? We are working together to encourage one another, to oversee one another's discipleship, to help one another grow by speaking the truth to one another in love. We are loving one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27, we read that at the beginning. Uh, here's the body. We're talking about membership like we talk about members of a body, uh, and no member can say, I don't need you. We actually need every member as part of this team to serve one another, to love one another, so that we can proclaim who God is, proclaim his excellencies, worship him, proclaim the gospel in the world, all of these things. We are not talking about joining Costco. We are talking about joining a team, working together for God's glory. And part of that is God wanting a distinct and visible and definable people to work together in it. That's how part of how he displays his glory, to have his people distinct, visible, and definable, which is why we talk about church membership. So when we talk about the function of church membership, it's not just the formal stuff. It is the formal stuff, but the formal stuff is not opposed to relationality. One helps the other. We have these formal commitments. It's just like marriage. We have a formal commitment that God has ordained to structure and to bless the people within that covenant. In a similar sort of way, God has given the formal bounds of membership to bless the people in it so they can love one another, work together, serve one another, encourage one another, be unified together, do all of the one another's that Scripture calls us to. And they can guard one another. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, and Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 talk about, let us... Uh, uh, admonish one another, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that no one of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to persevere to the end till we're in God's presence. I can't do that on my own. I need you, and you need me. We need each other to keep us on that path towards the gate of the kingdom of heaven. That's why church is so important. So we've talked about what do we mean by church membership? What's the function? I've just given you a flyby of the function, right? But read the New Testament. Read the New Testament letters, and you hear these people committed to one another, loving one another, caring for one another, rebuking one another if need be, uh, be all for the purpose of working together in loving our great God and Savior and helping us make it to the end to be with him. That is what we mean. That's the essence of church membership. Now let's talk about our final question, which is where we usually initially start when we think about church membership. Why is there a process 
for church membership? Why is there a process? Isn't that what you normally think about when you hear church membership? You think about paperwork and filling something out, and like I have to jump through X, Y, and Z hoop in order for this to happen. That's what we normally think about, isn't it? But I hope by going back and painting, no, what's the essence of it? Why do we care about this at all? It's not about the process. It's about who we are and who God is calling us to be. But there is a process. So why is there a process? Why is there a process for church membership? Why do we have a process as Faith Bible Church? Well, there's a process in the scriptures. Uh, Here's how it basically looks. God regenerates you. You confess faith in Christ, and in the spiritual sense, right, you are part of that universal church, right? Uh, But then Jesus expects you to get baptized, to let your faith, to have your faith go public. Uh, Who does the baptizing? We're going to talk about this more next week. The individual is saying, yeah, I'm confessing Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. Who does the baptizing? Local church. The local church, in exercising the keys of the kingdom, says, yeah, by what we can see, you're not only confessing Jesus, but we affirm, by what we, all that we can see, uh, that you are a disciple of Christ. That's the basic pattern. That's the basic process that's outlined in the New Testament. Now, but it was like, well, yeah, but we have way more to our process than that. Yes, we do. Why? Well, because there's always got to be a pragmatic process that a church must use to gain information about the profession, uh, even life, of a prospective member and to validate that profession. That's what we're doing. So in our process, right, there's always got to be something like that because what are we doing in membership? We are validating and affirming that, yeah, as a church, by all that we can see, you are a disciple. And that takes some time because we're not infallible. And so our process here looks like this. Fill out an application. Uh, and Julie's got applications, um, if any of you are interested in pursuing this process, but fill out an application. Just let us get to know you a little bit, some basic information. And then we're going to have an elder, two or three elders, interview you uh, and maybe kind of say, hey, what, how did you come to know the Lord? What's your understanding of the gospel? Remember the new covenant, everyone is, knows the Lord. So we want to make sure, by all that we can see, uh, that you know the gospel, you can articulate the gospel. If you can't articulate the gospel, that's a huge question mark. That's a huge question mark, right? But we want to know you, we want to understand where has God taken you, we want to hear you articulate the gospel. Uh, we want to understand, hey, where do you think you might serve? Because we need you, we need every member to serve. And then what do we do? We, uh, we, we as elders, we say, okay, yeah, we want to recommend this person as a member. So we recommend them to the body. You ever notice we do it for a couple weeks? Why is that? So that if anyone says, ooh, I got some serious concerns about that guy because, you know, he sounds good, but I can see his lifestyle in this particular way, and he's not walking in the way he ought, right? That's why we leave that gap time so that anyone can come forward if they they saw something that was questionable. And then what do we do? Uh, Lord willing, if everything goes well, then just like happened with Joel a couple weeks ago, we have him come up, share his testimony, uh, get to know him a little bit, uh, and then he affirms the membership covenant to the local church and the local church for him. Now, it's a pretty involved process. And here's the thing. 
the process, what, what did the process look like in the New Testament? You read Acts and it's like 3,000 believed in Jesus and they were baptized that day, right? But in the first century, how costly was it to stand up and say, I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm part of his people? Pretty costly, huh? Okay, fast forward. What about, uh, what about America, basically, since its founding, since the founding fathers? Well, it was founded, more or less, on Christian principles, right? So it was a positive benefit to say, I'm with Jesus. It was normal, right? And we've been in this culture for a number of years where it's like, it's easy to kind of hide out, right? And say, yeah, I follow Jesus. And it's like, do you? Because your life doesn't really look like it. And so it takes longer time to, it's just kind of the, the, the ramifications of living in a society of that. You say it like this, the process may take longer or shorter depending on the relative social cost of confessing Christ and following him. First century Israel, social cost pretty high. China right now, pretty darn high. America right now, neutral-ish. It's definitely changed over the last 50 years and maybe going towards a higher social cost as we go into the future. But that's why there's a process and that's why the process takes some time. Okay, so we've, we've talked about what do we mean by church membership? What's the function? What's the process? Hopefully that begins, and, and there's much, much more we could say, but this gives the initial like framework for thinking what is church membership. This is how we want to think about it. So what do we do with this? So what? If you're a member, we are so grateful for you. You're a stone in this local church. You're part of it. And you love one another. You're unified with each other. You care about one another. It is evident. So we are so grateful. But here's the other thing you can take away from this as a member of Faith Bible Church. Recognize membership is a joyful responsibility. It is a joyful responsibility. There's much joy in it, but it's also a responsibility because what are we doing? We are overseeing each other's discipleship and trying to help one another to grow and to follow Jesus to the end. And then maybe, if here's the other reality of that, that we all struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin. We all struggle with getting off that path. Well, Jesus has given you the membership of the local church to help you, to hold you accountable. So if you're struggling and you're having difficulty, you're not alone. It's going to take some humility to lean into the local church, but that's what you need to do. When you're struggling, when you're having difficulties, lean into the accountability of the local church. So those are some ideas if you're a member. If you're not a member, we are glad you're here and I would say this, if you're not a member and you're here today, join us. That's what we want. We want you to join us because we need every member. We need every part working together for the advancement of the gospel. Now, I'll say this, uh, maybe this is obvious, but membership doesn't transfer to kids, right? So maybe you're a member, but your kids aren't. It doesn't work that way. That's not the nature of church membership, but maybe if you're not a member, like I said, join us. But maybe you're not convinced, right? This is the, we struggle with this, and I get it. I was there. I was there right with you, so I get it. 
So if you're still not convinced, come talk to me or Jim and Steve, and let's just talk. Let's just talk. Let's have a dialogue uh, about it. Here's the other thing that you could do, though, if you're still not convinced on church membership. Ask this question. Why do I not want to join the local church? I think that's a good heart question to ask. We need to ask those questions of ourselves sometimes. Why do I not want to join the local church? Maybe there could be several answers to that question. Maybe it's like you don't see a need, right? That's what a lot of people feel about church membership. I just don't see the need. Why do I need to jump through the hoops? Well, hopefully I begin to show you that it's not about joining Costco. It's not about jumping through the hoops. There's so much more that's at stake. But maybe you answer that question, you know, why do I not want to join the local church? Maybe, maybe it's this. You think you're doing fine on your own. I believe in Jesus. I've repented. I've trusted him. Praise the Lord. But isolation is deadly. Jesus did not, demand, did not design for us to live our Christian lives in isolation. We've seen that through COVID. Plenty of people doing it on their own and drifting away. It's deadly. Isolation is deadly. So, friend, you are not fine on your own. It goes against what 1 Corinthians 12. Essentially, if you say you're fine on your own, you're saying you're that part in 1 Corinthians 12 that says, I have no need of you. You're self-amputating. <laughs> it's weird. So, friend, you're not fine on your own. You need the local church. And maybe you answer that question, well, why do I not, need, why do I not want to join a local church? Maybe you're still getting to know us. Right? Like, if you're a visitor here today or you've just been here for a couple weeks, you're still getting to know us to see if we're a sound local church, right? Well, that's good, right? You shouldn't just join any old local church out there, right? Because there are a lot of charlatan churches out there. So, use biblical criteria, evaluate us by the biblical criteria, and if we check out, join us. We would love to have you join. So maybe you're still getting to know us. Here's another answer to that question. Why do I not want to join a local church? And here's a reality. I was talking with someone about it last week. Maybe you've been burned by churches in the past, and you don't want to commit. Isn't that the case? We, there's plenty of churches out there that don't practice membership the way it ought to be practiced, and people get burned. They get hurt. And what that does, unfortunately, is it, it jades them against wanting to join next time. And so I can appreciate that. But you don't throw out the institution because you've seen a bad application. It's the same with marriage. Just because there are a lot of bad marriage, marriages out there, and I'm, that's sad, that doesn't mean you throw away marriage. It means you work hard in your marriage to live up to the standard, the stewardship authority that God himself has given. And help us. We need help, right? So if you're that person that's, I've been burned, I, it's, it's hard for me to trust, it's hard for me to, uh, to, to commit to other people and to have them commit to me, I get it. But help us. Join us and help us so we live up to the standard that Jesus has given us, so we do membership the way he wants us to. Now, that's for those who are not convinced. If you are convinced and you're not a member here today, get after it. Get after it. And we would love that. And it's a joyful thing to welcome a new member here at Faith Bible Church. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. It's amazing and scary that you had given the 
keys, the power of the keys, the authority of the keys to a local church. And Lord, we are feeble people. We acknowledge it. We are humble. And so we want to be absolutely dependent, dependent on your wisdom, dependent um, on your spirit, dependent on you through prayer. Lord, we pray that you would build your local church. We pray that you would add more members to this local church. We thank you for the members that are here and committed, and we praise you. Lord, help us as a local church to love one another, to live lives that honor you in the world that is a beacon, that's a display of your glory. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to help one another to grow in our path of discipleship. And ultimately, all of this, it's all dependent on your power through the Spirit. And we thank you for the Spirit you've given that indwells us individually and corporately as a local church. Thank you for these folks. Bless them as we go. In Christ's name, amen. Church, you are sent.